be accomplished even now. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, team. I appreciate you guys leading us musically. Look forward to them being back uh, to close our service as a response to what we hear from God in song. I want to read our main text this morning from Ephesians chapter 5. It will actually be sort of our, our main passage of Scripture for the next five Sundays, and we'll be in several other parts of the Bible as well. I actually want to begin with a verse from the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 4, speaking to a church of people like us. The Bible says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And from Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. and that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This Mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Father, you've told us that your words are the words of life. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word now. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. One thing you definitely get from looking at the Bible and the many things it has to say about human relationships, and particularly the relationship of marriage, is that marriage is an incredibly important thing to God. And as such, it becomes an important thing to God's people, whether we're currently married or not. Uh, when Hebrews 13.4 says that among Christians, marriage is to be held in honor by everyone, the married and the unmarried alike, that definitely tells us that um, marriage is somehow bigger than just a relationship between the two people who make up a given marriage. Like if you're married, then that's important to you, obviously, and if you're not, whatever, don't worry about it. That's not the idea. In the Bible's picture, it's like, no, marriage is important to everybody, whether you're currently involved in one or not. So why is that? What's going on here? That's what we want to talk about together for the next five Sundays as we seek to unpack God's vision for marriage. Because marriage is such a big deal to God and to all his people, this, this isn't uh, just a topic for married people, nor will this be only a sermon series for married couples. But we're going to find uh, many things, regardless of our current circumstances, that we can apply 
um, in our own relationships, whether or not we're married. So what I want to do is start out by just kind of briefly kind of telling you the plan so you'll know sort of where we're headed and, and where we're going and be able to engage with it more fully. For five Sundays, we're going to talk about, um, starting this morning, just the glory of marriage. Why, why marriage matters for all of us, according to the Bible. What difference does that make? Uh, secondly, next week, we'll talk about the power of promising. Um, to shape who we are. Now, that obviously applies within a marriage context where a husband and a wife make a lifelong covenant commitment to one another, although the same principle applies to our other relationships as well. Uh, applies to our family relationships, relationship with friends, even our relationships to one another as members of a local church where we're in a covenant relationship. So there's things to apply for all of us. Thirdly, we'll talk about the essence of friendship being together on the journey. That's the heart of what God intends marriage certainly to be. But obviously, we have many friendships. And once again, there are implications for all of our relationships. The fourth Sunday that we are together, we're going to talk about God's beautiful vision for sex in marriages, how those two relate. And once again, that's not just a message for married people because we are all sexual beings and we are all living out a view of sexuality whether we're aware of it or not. And there are competing views with God's view. What is God's positive vision for sexuality? That's a a question that our culture, I think, often gets wrong and we in the church often miss as well. And so we're going to try to do our best to have a really honest and delightfully uncomfortable for some of us look at the topic of sex. A topic, by the way, the Bible has a remarkable amount of things to say. Have you noticed that? And one thing I became convinced of many years ago as a pastor is if I ever get to a place where I'm not comfortable talking about the Bible in church, something's wrong with me, okay? So we're going to talk about that. Now, it is going to be a PG-rated sermon, okay? So lower your fears or your hopes or whatever you think. (laughs) Um, But it's going to be honest, okay? We're just going to walk toward that topic with joy because this is a topic that should cause us great joy, and it often doesn't. Why is that? We'll talk about that. Lastly, on our fifth Sunday together, we'll talk about uh, the tools of transformation, namely how truth, love, and grace build intimacy in a marriage. And of course, they do in all other relationships as well. So that's kind of a, a look at where we're headed. I'm just hopeful that we'll catch some of God's heart for how he designed us to function so that it will be a lot easier for us to hold marriage in high honor. Now, each Sunday, we're going to do this just a little bit different, not a whole lot different. We're just going to add a little bit of uh, a new spice to the soup that we normally make here every Sunday morning in that I'm going to be opening up the Bible and preaching like normal, but I'm going to do that for a little bit of a shorter time. And then every Sunday, I'm going to have one or two people join me up here around this table to just have a brief conversation about how we have experienced the very things that the Bible is describing. And the goal is not that anybody who's coming up here is an expert or that I'm an expert. We just want to break the ice a little bit as a church and be the kind of community that celebrates honest, God-honoring conversations. There shouldn't be topics we're afraid to be honest about with one another. So we just want to model that up here and talk about how that has impacted us. So I'm actually excited. My uh, beautiful bride, Amy, is going to join me here a little later. And we're just going to talk about how some of the things that I'm about to describe from the Bible have played out in our own marriage, uh, sometimes a little bit rough and other times for the better. And other times she'll join me or maybe other people will join me as well. So that's a little bit of a look at where we're headed for the next five weeks. I want to encourage you, um, regardless of what this brought up, I mean, I might have just said marriage and you're already just like, oh my gosh, this is the last thing I want to talk about, right? Maybe because that topic is painful. Maybe because it conjures up feelings of failure. Maybe because there are stresses and pressures. Maybe it's just the last thing you want to think about right now. 
But if we can move forward into the conviction that God addresses the topic, whether we're married or not, for our good and his glory, we will see some things that can transform our lives for the better. And I think we, we need that help, don't we? As we start talking about the glory of marriage, um, we need some help right now. This has been a rough year on relationships overall, has it not? This has been a really rough year, and particularly on homes and on marriages. Um, the kind of stresses that we're, we're under, I don't know how many new problems it creates, but it certainly greatly reveals the problems that we have. I was just talking with somebody before the service about that. I think that's true. It's revealed a lot of the problems and issues that are already in our relationships and in our marriages and sort of forced us to come face to face with them in a way that maybe we don't normally you know, like if you've ever um, seen them drain a lake, has anybody ever seen that? If they're like working on a dam or if it's just a reservoir and it's kind of when the water's low because they're using it for irrigation or whatever, um, and you like actually see what's on the bottom of the lake. And normally like you know there's rocks and boulders and like old discarded mattresses and whatever junk is down there. Like, you know, you're aware of that stuff, but when the water's there, you don't see it. It's this pristine, beautiful lake, you know, but then when the water's gone, you finally just see it for what it is. And I feel like this, this COVID year has been like that. There's a lot of stuff under the surface in our marriages. Sometimes it's not great. Sometimes it's really hard. But you know, you can, you can learn to ignore it and live with it. You just put the water over the top. You just don't deal with it. And now it's like it's all stripped away. You know, whether it's like increased uncertainty about the future, where are we going? What's going to happen? Are we optimistic or pessimistic about where society is headed? And the more pessimistic we become, the more stress that brings into our lives and that shows up in our homes, right? Or maybe you're not so much on that one, but uh, there's added pressures with parenting. Oh my gosh, whether you're single or married, parenting this last year, especially school-age kids. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not really proud of it, but there's been more than once. Amy and I looked at each other and said, thank God our kids were done with school before COVID hit, right? I mean, the kinds of things some of you parents are going through, trying to work if you have jobs outside your home and then parent, and then suddenly we're now kind of homeschooling, and triple bonus points if you're trying to work as a teacher, and so you're trying to figure it out with all those other kids as well as your own kids, the stuff some of us have had to go through, and then it's like, so now how are we going to connect as husband and wife? Wow. That makes it harder. Many people have been under extreme economic stress as well. And a lot of us have had jobs and industries that were fine, like with COVID. We were able to just pack up and move home, and it was no big deal. Some of us even work in industries that were doing better because of the pandemic. We're like, man, business is booming. Well, you know, good for you, but not all of us are that lucky. Some of us have been working in industries where we're like, where is the work? Do I even have a future? How are we going to make all of the bills line up? And that's an incredible amount of financial pressure that always brings pressure to bear on a marriage. But even if you were one of those lucky ones and you were able to just move home and start working from home, where you're around your spouse all the time, 24-7, 365, isn't it great? How's that been going? <laughs> You sort of realize suddenly, man, I never realized how small our house was until we had to be together in it all the time. It's not always been a good thing. Whatever the pressure is, we need some guidance on how to understand marriage. And so we want to look to Scripture for our guidance rather than our culture. Because here's our conviction, our experience of marriage current or future, will only improve when we come to understand God's purpose in it. That is so important. 
our experience, this is our conviction here as a church, certainly my conviction of where we're going. Our experience of marriage will only improve when we understand God's purpose in it, which sometimes reframes our entire purpose, and that's hard. That, that takes work and energy. Sometimes we don't feel like we want to, but that's where we will find life. So we want to look to Scripture rather than to our culture because honestly, the culture around us is pretty conflicted about marriage right now. That was true before the pandemic as well. Uh, and that's not really just an observation uh, from me. An increasing number of, of researchers, people who like, study this stuff, uh, both religious and secular, are all saying the same kinds of things. That paradoxically, our culture right now is of kind of two opposite minds about marriage at the same time, which at first sounds like that shouldn't be the case. Like on the one hand, they're saying we expect too much from marriage, and on the other hand, we don't expect nearly enough out of our marriages. And you're like, That's, how could that both be true at the same time? But when you start thinking about it, it begins to make sense. But here's what they mean. On the one hand, like we tend to expect too much out of marriage as modern Americans. Uh, one article uh, in a secular journal, I think it was like the Atlantic magazine or something, I can't remember, put it this way. This is from 2017, so just a few years ago. It said this, quote, tall, dark, handsome, funny, kind, great with kids, six-figure salary, and a harsh but fair critic of my creative output. The list of things that people want from their spouses and partners has grown substantially in recent decades. That's the core observation. So argues uh, Eli Finkel, a professor of social psychology at Northwestern University. It's no longer enough for a modern marriage to simply provide a second pair of strong hands to help around the homestead or even just a nice enough person who happens to be from the same neighborhood. No, no. Nowadays, people are increasingly seeking self-actualization within their marriages, expecting their partner to be all things to them. End quote. That's what researchers are noticing who study changing attitudes about marriage over time. What they're saying is like, people are looking for a spouse these days who will help them, who help me be a, a better me. Right? who will help me attain my own goals and fulfill my own dreams. I'm looking for somebody who is going to help give me the kind of life I want. i got no room in my life for any relationship that's going to take more than it's going to give. It has to satisfy me. And so as a different researcher, I believe also not even a religious person, a secular researcher put it, the whole new marriage is the me marriage. What can you do for me? And it's worth pointing out that this is like totally new in history, honestly. That's what they're all saying. Like, this is totally new. No other society has bought into this idea that marriage is supposed to be an instrument for personal fulfillment at a society-wide level like our society has today. This is totally new, and it's fairly recent. And of course, there's a problem with it. What happens when two people want the same thing? Which normally sounds like a good thing, Right? But if I want you to make me happy, what I'm saying is I want you to adjust to me and you can't demand too much in return because that might knock me off of what I want. So I want you to adjust to me and make me happy. Well, she's thinking the same thing about me. There's a problem, isn't there? What happens when our mutual opinions on who should adjust no longer align? Suddenly the marriage isn't working. It can't work. There's a fantastic book that Tim and Kathy Keller wrote called The Meaning of Marriage. just came out a few years ago. 
Uh, Amy and I have read it multiple times, benefited from it in our own marriage. I use it when I do premarital counseling for young couples that are getting ready to enter marriage. Anybody who's married should read this book. Um, If you think or hope or are even remotely interested in being married someday, you should really read this book. In fact, we're actually going to have some copies of that available to purchase in our atrium just at our cost next week because we want to see this get into the hands of the members of our church. So that'll be here next Sunday. You don't even have to wait for us. You can go out on Amazon, get your e-reader version or your paperback version, whatever you want to do. Highly encourage us to read The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Here's what he says in that book. He said, A marriage that is based not on self-denial but self-fulfillment will require a low or no-maintenance partner who meets your needs while making very few claims on you. Simply put, today people are asking far too much in the marriage partner. Whether you're currently married or hope to be someday, what about you? What about you? What are your expectations of this current or future relationship? Now, many of us say, well, look, I realize, I mean, you know, some of the lists that, that we can read of people are just like over the top. I'm not that unrealistic. But another way to ask that same question is to ask about your own disappointments with your current marriage, if you're married, or maybe with past relationships you've had. What has disappointed you about those relationships or about your spouse? Because after all, what is a disappointment other than an unmet expectation? So I can look at my disappointments and find out what my expectations really are, not what I think they are. What has disappointed me about my marriage, about my spouse? What does that say about my expectations? Are they too high? Now, there's plenty of good reason, even without outside help, to rethink some of our astronomically high expectations. Right? I mean, think about it this way. Let me me talk to us as guys for a minute, right? You're always looking for the perfect woman. And everybody's got a little bit different idea about what that is, right, of course. But, But, you know, let's even say... Forget how realistic it is to find her. Let's even pretend you find her. You find that perfect hot babe with that perfect body. And she laughs at your jokes. She also loves to cook gourmet meals. And she enjoys cleaning house. But she's also athletic and outdoorsy, so she'll hike with you on the weekends. And she has a job outside the home so she can help fund your ski boat. Okay, if you find, if you find her, guys, can I ask the, the, the obvious question? What in the world makes you think she's going to be stuck with you for the rest of her life, right? <laughs> but we build these lists of like, here's all the stuff I'm looking for in a spouse. Really? And it works the other way too, ladies, right? You already got a dose of yours in that article I quoted a moment ago. But I mean, like whatever that means to you, that perfect guy, right? He's, he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome. He has that five o'clock shadow beard, which is like the in thing now. I don't know, what, like all the movies and TV shows with the romantic male lead, they've always got that like thin five o'clock shadow beard, which is just weird to me. It's actually probably just my own insecurity because when I grow a beard, it doesn't look good. So maybe that's, anyway. Um, so he's got that look, you know, he's, he's strong. And he's, he's macho, he's masculine, he's manly, and he'll defend you. You feel safe and protected by him. But he's not offended by your strength. So basically, like, he'll be strong when you want him to be, and he'll be really passive when you want him to be. You know, you find that guy. Um, and he loves kids. And he makes his six figures. 
and he hates watching TV, and he adores long, deep conversation and walks on the beach. (laughs) Whatever it is, right? Okay, you find him. Why do you think he's dying to spend the rest of his life with you, right? I mean, if we're realistic, it's not that hard to realize, man, sometimes our expectations get out of whack. But you know what? Our problem here is even bigger. Our problem here is bigger than that. And the Bible helps here by providing a completely different perspective on relationships. It tempers our stratospheric expectations about relationships by telling us why a spouse can never bring us ultimate fulfillment. And there's at least two things going on here. First, the Bible tells us that every marriage is the union of two sinners. Okay? Every marriage is the union of two sinners. Isaiah 53, 6, the Old Testament prophet says that we all, all, everybody, like sheep, have gone astray. We've wandered away from God's righteous commands. We don't want to live for him anymore. We want to live for us. That's the default state of the human heart. The New Testament agrees in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. Men, women, previously married, unmarried, young, old, it doesn't matter. Every marriage is the union of two sinners. Which means that that perfect person I'm looking for will never actually be perfect. So why am I looking? But you know what? It also means I'm not perfect either. So I think about this in my own marriage. This will be really practical. Amy and I have been married for 26 years now. Like I can never expect her or the relationship I have with her to satisfy me deeply because of sin. There's her sin. I can never truly expect somebody who has sin in their life to be totally others focused on me, 24-7, 365, all of life perfectly. That's ridiculous. She deals with her own sins and her own selfishness. But her sin isn't the only problem. So is mine. <laughs> I talk about meeting my desires as if that will make me happy. But actually my very desires are warped and twisted by my own sin. Right, see, here's the truth. I think I will be happy if people give me what I want, the maximum of what I want, with the minimum effort and cost on my part, right? That's what I think, and you do too. Don't kid yourself. You do too. You think you'll be happy when you get everything you feel like you want with a minimum of cost and threat and and, and need to change and risk on your own part. And so we demand that from our spouses. But here's the thing. When we get, which rarely happens, when we get everything we want, how happy are we? It doesn't last. It doesn't work. Like, like gorging on sweets, it's a whole lot easier to convince my, my appetite that I want to eat donuts and cheesecake than asparagus, okay? But if I get all of it that I want, I end up feeling sick. I'm miserable. Why? Because my very desires are all jacked up. I need to have my desires changed. And I can't change my desires. My wife certainly can't change my desires. Only God can do that. So the perfect spouse many people seek will never be perfect. But you know what? We're never the perfect spouse either. That tempers our expectations. But you have to also add to that the fact that we weren't ultimately made to be satisfied by another human being anyway. We were made to be satisfied in God, which I think is the kind of thing so many church-going Christian people nod on Sunday and say, yes, that's true, and we have no idea what that means in real life because we're constantly seeking to be satisfied in the stuff of the world. We don't even know what it means to be satisfied in God because we've never experienced that. But Jesus said in John 15, he was praying that our joy would be complete as we abide in him, not a spouse. That means the single person 
has every bit as much access to deep, satisfying fulfillment as the married person because we don't find that in marriage. We find it in our union with Christ. So the Bible helps kind of temper those stratospheric expectations. On the one hand, people seeking marriage partners are generally expecting way too much, but there's an interesting dynamic here. Keller goes on to say in the Meaning of Marriage book, it seems almost oxymoronic to believe that this new idealism has led to a new pessimism about marriage. But that is exactly what has happened. In generations past, there was far less talk about compatibility or finding an ideal soulmate. Today we're looking for someone who accepts us as we are and fulfills our desires. But this creates an unrealistic set of expectations that frustrates both the searchers and the searched for. And so on the one hand, we expect too much, and he's saying that then leads us to expect too little. There's a dynamic between the two. Because our expectations are so high, they rarely get met. And when they do, it's never for long. And so consequently, what we experience and see all around us is is like a battlefield. It's just strewn with the smoking and rusting hulks of broken relationships and broken hearts. And we start to believe that there isn't any better future possible. The typical person today knows very few model marriages. Very few. I actually do this, I think, every time. I try to do it every time. With every, every time I engage in premarital counseling with a couple. First meeting, I'm like, yeah, you guys are in love. It's going to be awesome. You want God's best? Oh, yeah, God's best. We're in it for life. Okay. Um, let, me, let me let some air out of your balloon, right? How many model marriages do you guys personally know of? Oh, well, they start thinking. I'm like, no, I'm not hypothetical. Figure it out. Like, how many? Well, I mean, you know, there's, um, you know, well, yeah, I mean, there's your brother and then sister-in-law. They seem pretty happy. And yet, I, said, I didn't say pretty happy. I said, like, like, you look at them and you say, man, I hope our marriage is like that. Well, they don't seem to hate each other, but I guess I don't know that that's a model. Okay, so, you know, well, no, you know, my parents got divorced when I was three, and my grandparents lived together for 62 years and hated each other's guts and slept in separate bedrooms. So, no, I guess, you know, um, and they go through, you know what? Totally (laughs) non-scientific. This is totally anecdotal. The typical couple I talk to can come up with between zero and maybe two. Between them. Marriages that they would say, I hope we end up like that couple. And I say, how many marriages do you know? Dozens. I say, what does that tell you? Oh. Maybe this is going to be harder than we thought. But you see, the problem is, at that point, we get jaded. I'm like, I'm happy now. This is the welcome to reality. This is the first step toward wisdom. Like, you know, there's hope for your marriage yet, right? But only if we do it God's way, right? The problem is people go through that same exercise in their heads and they they get jaded. They get cynical. They say, marriage doesn't work. So they either choose to not pursue marriage at all, maybe living together instead, because we know we can always bail out at any point. Or we enter into marriage with high hopes, but but really preparing for the worst. Even if our hopes are high, our expectations are very low. (laughs) In Keller's book, he describes one scene where a young single man uh, got on an internet bulletin board late 20-something and said, man, I don't know any good healthy marriages. Marriage marriage makes people miserable. I'm never getting married. I'm just not going to do it. And he just put that out there. And people were responding... One single woman who didn't know him basically jumped on his post and said, good for you, that's really smart. And she said, I will marry my fiancé next year because I love him, but if it doesn't end up working out, I won't hesitate to divorce him. 
You see, that's, that's the me marriage. I'm, if this doesn't work, I really don't have high hopes, not really high expectations. And so these two, these high expectations and these low expectations form kind of a destructive resonance, you know, where the higher one gets, the more it pushes on the other one. And what at first seems like they should be opposites are actually feeding each other. You want to do yourself a favor, go Google the video of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? Like years and years ago, the bridge over the Tacoma Narrows up in Puget Sound, a suspension bridge, and the wind got going in just such a way that it actually started wobbling the bridge and it set up a resonance and the whole bridge was going to buckle and fall. And so they closed it, and there's this like one crazy engineer walking out in the middle of it because they were able to calculate like how long it was going to be until the thing actually broke. And so there's this one guy walking out in the middle. You can actually see the video of this while the bridge is literally doing this in these gale force winds side by side, and everybody's going, that guy's insane. It's no, he's just an engineer. To some of us, that's the same thing. Um, sorry. It was total low blow. I love you engineers. I really do. We love you guys. I do think he got off the bridge, and it did come down, like it crashed. This, this negative resonance, the one wave pushes an opposite wave, and it just starts to spin out of control. The Bible's perspective on marriage is completely different. It's not just lower your expectations, and it's not just raise your expectations. It's, guys, we've been thinking about this whole thing wrong. Are we willing to consider that? It's actually more hopeful than both in at least two ways. And we're going to unpack some of this over the next few weeks, so I'll just be really brief here. We talk about the glory of marriage and God's view for it. We saw it here in Ephesians chapter 5. First of all, marriage is far more than fulfilling us and making us happy. The Bible tells us, tells us that marriage reflects the gospel. That's, that's what it is. That's what it does. It's a reflection of God's relationship with us. We saw that in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32 that I read a moment ago. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it relates to Christ and the church. Are we talking about marriage, or are we talking about God's relationship with his people? Yes. Yes, and that is a big mystery. You know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the words there that are translated profound mystery, like you don't even need to know Greek to hear what they're saying. The words are mega mysterion. It is a mega mystery. This is a big, deep mystery that's going on here. And by mystery, it doesn't mean something like profound or weird or eerie. What it means is something obscured, something that people often don't see. The Bible is saying there's a different way of understanding what's happening in a marriage than people usually see. They look right at it and they think they've understood it and they've missed the whole point. It's a huge mystery how two distinct people can become so interconnected that for one to love the other is to love oneself. But that's the real issue. This is supposed to happen in marriage because it does happen in salvation. Mankind's relationship with God. The lifelong, all-in, unconditional love that a husband and a wife vow to give one another shows what God's love is toward us is like. Pursuing us when we didn't even want anything to do with him. Dying for us, the Bible says, while we were still sinners. Committed to turning our backs on him. And the all-in, forever devotion and worship that we give God in response, that's what the marriage is designed to depict. That's what it is. That's what it's for. That's what it's doing. 
which means that a married couple is doing something far greater with one another than making each other happy. We're going to talk a lot more about that in week three, being together on the journey. But let me just say, in over 20 years of pastoring, I am really tired of hearing Christians talk about how unhappy I am in my relationships and in my marriage. Doesn't God want me to be happy? (sighs) Yes. Learn to look him in the face and have your whole heart undone at the love of a God that would hang on a cross for you. Maybe you've believed that for years and you've never experienced that love. Maybe now's the time. Marriage is so much more. It reflects the mind-blowing love that God has for us that's too easy to acknowledge but not experience. But you know what? Secondly, it not only reflects the gospel, it requires the gospel. Since every marriage is a union of two sinners, forgiveness is an absolute necessity on a regular basis because we're going to sin against each other. But not only forgiveness, change is also an absolute necessity. See, grace and forgiveness is great, but it can lead us to take the grace giver for granted. We, a lot of times we do that with God, right? God, I'm so sorry I sinned. I know you'll forgive me because he's promised to, so I just continue to be unchanged. Yes, he will forgive you, but he is not only calling you to change, he's giving you the power to change. We talked about that last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, didn't we? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in the life of a Christian to make me a different person. If God can resurrect Jesus' stone-cold dead body from the grave, he can change my character and my patterns and my selfishness. And therefore, he can revolutionize my marriage. We need forgiveness and we need to change and breathe new life into these relationships. So what I want to do right now is uh, invite my beautiful bride up here to join me, and we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about this. We're going to talk to each other and just let you eavesdrop, and because we planned it this way, that's not creeper, and that's not weird. Um, so feel, well, maybe it is, but anyway, um, feel free to, to join in, but first of all, I want to thank you because you're awesome and you're really cute, and you're more cute when you take that mask off, and we're all looking forward to the day when we can take those masks off, but that should be live and for you. So here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to... Um, just for the sake of time, we've talked about this ahead of time, so we've, we kind of know where we're going, but we haven't scripted this. We're just going to have a, an honest, free-flowing conversation with each other uh, in front of a bunch of strangers. Um, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to frame it just in, in a minute by saying we've kind of settled in on one issue that I think for us um, really helped unpack some of these ideas of our expectations and the reality of sin in our relationship. So we uh, got married uh, a little over 26 years ago, pretty confident about our expectations. Certainly I was. Uh, We were told by a lot of people, including the pastor who did our premarital counseling, that we were probably more mature in our expectations about marriage than most people he'd counseled. So we kind of went in thinking like, great, we're, we're doing well. And I think maybe we were, but surprise, surprise, we had conflict. So one that came up real early, the first year of our marriage, I think you were reminding me, it was really early. So I was in grad school, um, studying really hard, working part-time in a physical labor job. Uh, you were running the home. You were also working outside the home. And so there was a lot of stress and a lot of busyness. And so um, as an introverted person, when I would come home, I would want to recharge in my introverted way the same way I did when I was single, which meant I turn on the computer and I blow stuff up on my strategy games <laughs> for a long time. And um, <laughs> that didn't really involve you. And I came to find out that you might have different thoughts about how okay that was. 
Um, so hence our, our conflict. Like, you know, dinner's ready. You want me to come to the table. You want to have a long conversation. So having set that up, let me just, let me ask the question. Um, looking back now, what did that tell us about our expectations? And, and I'll, I'll start. I'll break the ice by, by putting myself out there first. I wouldn't have said this at the time. Actually, boy, 26 years later, I still hate to say this even now because it just sounds awful. Because um, it is. It is. <laughs> that is true. Um, I wanted um, a hot wife and a hot dinner. And I had them both. And I thought I had it made. But I also wanted them when I was ready for them. That's the part that sounds awful. You don't have to give me that much response, people. No, I'm kidding. It, 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 seriously, it is. I mean, um, so when you would indicate to me that you weren't happy with this arrangement, it was just way easier in retrospect to think that you were being unreasonable. Um, but the reality was, in terms of expectations, if I forget you, what are my expectations? I, I have to ask myself. I think I was expecting to have my desires met, that's what I said earlier, without having to give very much. This is what I want. Why can't it just be that way? Um, so I had to start wrestling with that. What would, um, how did you experience that, that environment, that conflict, and what would you say your expectations were? Well, to give you what you did and do the same, I have to admit something I didn't think was really true, but I expected once we got married, now we don't have to say goodbye at night, have to be mm -hmm. care, careful with boundaries and all that other stuff, Oh, yay, we'll have. Marriage is just, ugh, I don't want to say it. It's just one long date. <laughs> and yeah. you're going to be there. And when you yeah. come home, you want to connect with me like we did on dates. Mm -hmm. And you're not in front of a computer. And you're not playing your games because I don't like those games. <laughs> so you're giving to me, same thing, ultimately what I enjoyed. We'd mm -hmm. find things to do together. So I expected... Um, yeah, I think I expected way too much. And so when it came to decompressing, I was really hoping, hey, dinner's ready, it's hot, we eat it now. Dinner's ready, it's hot, we eat it now. <laughs> that, that was my selfishness. I didn't realize how big a deal that was for me. So much so that, yeah, at Thanksgiving time, I just love us all going around saying what we're thankful, but dinner's getting cold and it's taken all day to make. <laughs> so you... I had no idea what I was getting into. No, you didn't. So yeah, things could be frosty at the dinner table if you didn't arrive within the time period I thought was reasonable. Mm -hmm. No more than five minutes, ten minutes max. And yeah, I also had I to learn that arriving physically is not the same thing as arriving emotionally. Indeed, that was a lesson for me. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Now you're not yeah. talking, your brain is somewhere else. Yeah. And so I expected us to, yeah, connect well. And then past dinner, you did help with the dishes uh, and then disappeared a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm for good reason. There were studies and whatever, but then I, I grew more bitter toward yeah. Yeah. the downtime that you had to do by yourself. Why can't you do that with me? Yeah, yeah. Always easier to point out somebody else's expectations. Our own are kind of hard to swallow. Um, but expectations are one thing. This issue of marriage being the union of two sinners, um, easy to agree with in principle. <laughs> so let's talk for a minute about how that came about how that played into this whole dynamic and what we've, you know, by God's grace, been learning over 20 now, six years of marriage. Um, and again, I'll start. Um, if my expectations are going to change, 
then I have to deal with like root sins. Um, it's not just a matter of learning better communication skills, although that's part of it. But there's reasons like I don't want to change. And suddenly now I have to deal with that. What's going on inside me that doesn't want to change? And so I think I realized, um, as I said, I would spend my, my decompressed time the same way I did when I was single. And I just kind of kept doing that while we were married. And now that wasn't working, so... Um, I'm getting frustrated, I, I don't want to change. And I think a, a passage of scripture that I've always loved, it's actually just a phrase in the middle of one really long sentence from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Um, I've loved it because it's, it's creatively stated, but it's also really cutting. He says that people who don't follow God, um, their God is their belly. Your God, small g, is your belly. I've always, I'm like, that is just a great piece of writing, <laughs> first of all. What an image. But I'm like, oh, I can relate. I mean, it's this idea of, of what, what I obey, that that's your God. What you're serving, what you're responding to is whatever your impulses are now. It could be your literal belly, and you know, I can get addicted and driven by food, or, or a sexual appetite, or some other kind of physical addiction, or it could be, you know, anything. Whatever my impulses are now. So I eventually had to start realizing why am I constantly wanting to run to a form of decompression that has nothing to do with you? It's because that's what I want. That's what I feel like I want and need right now. How much do I need? Well, until I don't feel like I need it anymore. You know, I didn't have an answer to that question. You're preaching really good. Are you listening? Yes, I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, This is being recorded, so you can play it back for me later. Um, We'll have a good fight. It'll be awesome. Um, But really, yeah, I think that idea of, okay, so uh, sometimes you would ask, how long do you need? I'm like, I don't know. And I, I never asked that question because I never had to when I'm single. I want to go until I feel like I'm done. So what am I obeying? I'm obeying my own feeling. I feel like I want this, so therefore it must be true. And that's the sin, I realize. Like, my God is my belly. This isn't just an issue of being insensitive to you, although it was certainly that. Like, is this an issue of idolatry? I'm all about Jesus, but I'm really about my feeling. Ooh, that hurt. But coming to acknowledge that myself then confess it to God as a sin and ask him to change me. And then because of the sin of pride, I think the hardest part is confessing that to you. So being at a place where I could say, I think there's a big part of this that you're right. I don't know how much time I need and I probably think I need more than I do and that's my selfishness. Um, I'm sorry. Um, I don't think it was until I got to that point that I would actually have been ready to change. Um, how about you? You've also talked about your own experience with expectations and sin. What was that like for you? Yeah, um, I think what I... Neg- well, um, I'll just follow your lead. Um, for me, thinking back during that time period of then asking you how much time do you really need, um, you turned and told me, how can I communicate to you that I love you more than my own downtime. Because there was a hurt aspect of, you really can't spend that time with me and feel filled up. That was something I didn't understand. And what I didn't understand, I've come to learn I judge, I look down on, I belittle, and I just want, I don't want to. I don't want to engage with it. And so the passage that comes to mind, while we did just talk about one little phrase, I looked it up right before I got up here and went, oh, all right, we need the whole thing. <laughs> Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing <laughs> from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility 
think of others as more important than yourself. And so for me, the selfish ambition was, I did make you a gourmet meal. I have served and shopped and planned and oh, is this about me or is this really, I'm thinking I'm serving. Mm -hmm. Sin is incredibly deceptive. So I had to look really hard at that. I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to consider him and God, I've got to consider how you're going to work on his sin issue, thankfully, please, Lord, at Mm -hmm. the same time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, then I'll let you work on me. I will be willing to look at this and realize, okay, I need to find a way to serve. Is there a way I can give you 10-minute warning? Can I do that with a meal? Sometimes it's readier sooner than you thought. or You know, those kinds of things. And let go of it is getting cold. Don't be grumpy at the table. So, yes, I had to own you're being selfish. You're being very conceited. And you are lording it over in the sense that, no, I got this one figured out, and I don't want to understand your stuff. Um, And that was just another form of pride. Yeah, it's so crazy how when we're sinned against and we become a victim, the immediate attempt is to be a victimizer, you know, Um, because something has been done wrong to us, so now we become the judgmental critic. Um, That just, so that has the potential to destroy a marriage. Um, Thankfully, here we are 26 years later and we're still married. (laughs) We smile at each other and we mean it. So, you know, one thing I would say um, in, in experiencing all of this now 26 years later, none of those issues that surfaced in this this early conflict in our marriage have completely gone away. Uh, we both still deal with them. They may take different forms and apply themselves in different ways, but those roots, sins, and expectations are still there and still occasionally, um, uh, periodically even, cause conflict. But I would say, from my experience, um, seeing how your confession of sin and how God has worked on you has changed it. Um, I would say that now, when you let me know that I'm not communicating that I'm as available to you as I should be and as you want me to be, I think I used to experience that as feeling belittled. Because it's like you should be and you're, you wouldn't say these words, but you're stupid for wanting to do that instead of this. So now I have to, now I'm feeling shamed, which of course made me defensive and that's no excuse, but it's interesting now, 26 years later, you bring those things up and I don't feel attacked. And a lot of that is because I think the disposition of your heart and how you've learned to express your legitimate concerns with my in a, you know, um, insufficient behavior, but in a way that doesn't make me feel attacked. And I think that's just tremendous growth in you that I thank God for. And um, your I do too. That's all God. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, for me to have the opportunity to affirm you, we all these years have tried to figure out what's the best way Um, well, you push me. What do I need to do? I need your eyes. I need to understand I'm interrupting you. Okay, I'm interrupting. How can I interrupt well? Um, And what can you tangibly do to see me so I don't feel ignored? I don't feel um, less than your need for your own isolated downtime. Um, That's very legit. I still don't fully understand it. It's not my experience. I can get filled up by having a good, deep conversation with someone or doing something. So a lot of isolated downtime I still don't understand. But I will say you have um, communicated over time, and we figured out, especially as technology and gaming can happen on that thing. (laughs) You have my total attention. (laughs) 
so we've we've had to work over the years with different things and you know you add the kids element and you'd play with the kids and have fun with them I'm like oh he's not playing with me and having fun with me I mean there is a no 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 don't go there it just try to um, see and be willing and I've I've seen you work at that for me so that no I am not ignored um, I am loved I feel that now yeah. even in the midst of you. Uh, doing something that, and I can come along um, within reason. I've also learned to, is this necessary to interrupt right now? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so much of that I think is, and, and uh, I did just put away my timer too, which was telling me we're done, so I need to wrap it up. Um, but so much of this is, yeah, I think dealing with um, applying the gospel. You know, it requires the gospel. Um, we can negotiate around each other without God's help. We can't really change until we've identified sin, confessed sin to God and to one another. And then the Holy Spirit can change us, and suddenly our relationship is in a better place because we're changing individually. Um, so I love being on that journey with you. And I appreciate you coming up in front of everybody here to do that. So what I'm going to do right now is I want to ask our music ministry team to come back up. I'm going to pray uh, for this whole time, and then we're going to go out of here just singing and uh, praising God. Lord, we want to thank you for your goodness to us. We want to thank you for the beauty of marriage, even though we recognize that for none of us has the experience of marriage um, ever been perfect all the time. And for um, all of us, uh, we may even have um, reservations about marriage. We don't often see it or experience it as glorious. But God, wherever each one of us are at with our hurts, our pains, our hopes, our joys, our expectations, our fears, our shames, and our guilts, God, I pray that the reality that marriage points to today the gospel would shape our experience more than anything. God, even as we sing now, we've looked to your word at your relentless love for us, that you don't accept us because we succeed. You love us even when we failed. You have succeeded for us and made us your own. God, I pray that you would help each one of us to find life in you. And I pray that you would breathe new life into our own hearts, our homes, and our relationships as a result. For our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.